Gracious Father, we thank you that we are, our lives are hidden with Christ and God, that Christ is our life. Would you help us to examine our own lives, our hearts, our minds, our practices today? God, would you give us wisdom and noticing or paying attention to ways of life that are not aligned with that vision and that destiny? And God, would you help us to reorient ourselves, as Paul says to you? God, we can't do this on our own. We desperately need you. So we thank you that you've done everything that needs to be done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of your spirit. So would you teach us, give us humble hearts, open us to your truth, to your presence and your power and your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel like there's a gap between the person that you want to become and the life that you're actually living right now? Maybe you look at your marriage and you're not the husband or the wife that you hoped that you would be when you took your vows. There's a gap between wanting to be this great spouse and then the actual me that shows up in my house every day. Maybe you look at your parenting, your children or your grandchildren, and you're like, man, I have all of these desires to be this person of love that you know, Paul describes here in this passage I want to be loving. I want to be a person of peace and humility and gentleness, and yet find myself angry and resentful and not able to be patient with these little people that have been entrusted to me or these big people that have been entrusted to me. I'm just not where I want to be. Or maybe you're single and you look around at the quality of your relationships and, and your desire to live with integrity in this calling or this season that you're in, and you're like, man, I'm just so far from where I thought I'd be. You know, I thought I'd be holier. I thought I'd be better than I am right now. Maybe you look at your life with Jesus and you're like, man, I, this is not where I thought I'd be. I, I thought I'd be growing and I feel stuck. Or maybe I'm even regressing in my relationship with Jesus where in previous seasons I was growing. David Brooks, New York Times columnist, writes about this gap or this tension. He says, you follow your desires, <clears throat> your new desires, wherever they take you, and you approve of yourself so long as you're not obviously hurting anyone else. You figure that if the people around you seem to like you, then you must be good enough. In the process, you, sit, you end up slowly turning yourself into something a little less impressive than you originally hoped. A humiliating gap opens up between your actual self and your desired self. Humiliating gap. I don't know if you've ever felt that. That resonates at all with you. Every year, we have a cultural ritual uh, known as uh, New Year's resolutions, where we try to address that gap um, we try to reinvent ourselves. And I've noticed during COVID and kind of like whatever we're doing with the pandemic that like this is only intensified. Like there's a, there's a whole genre of writing now around what you call post-pandemic reinvention. It's like you can reinvent your life. You went into COVID and you were this terrible, miserable person. And now you have the opportunity to emerge and a whole new butterfly and to redesign your life and reinvent your life. And here's the 10 life hacks. They're going to help you do that. And like you tried all of those and you've already failed. Like it's already, it's already over. It's been like just a couple of months. We do this every year, and we do this in different seasons of life. We try to take on new habits, new relationships, new budgets. Maybe you try to find a new church community. If I could just switch my church, that'll make a difference. Or if I get this new diet, or if I get this new relationship, or if I can get rid of this relationship, or get rid of this diet, or whatever. And yet, we, in all of our efforts to try harder, find ourselves getting stuck. It's uh, kind of like, on our, we went on a church retreat a few weeks ago, and somebody, who knew, like out in um, uh, Crawfordsville, 
there's quicksand. But somebody got into some quicksand on our retreat and, and like literally were, was panicking. And like the, they were like, the only thing I remember is don't fight because the harder you fight in quicksand, the deeper you go. And so they were able to kind of work themselves out of the quicksand. But you feel maybe that sense of like spiritual and emotional quicksand. Life just hasn't worked out the way that I thought it would. And there's this danger, right, in that place. William Irvine, a philosopher, writes about what he calls the danger of misliving. He says, despite all of your activity, there's a danger that you will mislive. Despite all of your activity, despite all of the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you're on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. Today, we're going to be finishing up our fall teaching series on seeking God. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at different passages in the Psalms and today in Colossians about how we actually live into this vision of seeking God, being a people who seek God. And and what I love about Scripture is there's just so much realism in it, right? Like they don't overlook these tensions, this humiliating gap between our ideal self and our real self. It's all over the place. We see people writing about this and trying to figure this out. And, and I don't think there's anywhere that brings into the heart of this tension probably more than Colossians chapter 3, right? If you notice verse 1, there's our word, seek the things above. And yet there's this acknowledgement that we're not quite there. So Paul walks us as a good pastor into this tension. Paul, who was one of the most well-known seekers of God, who had all kinds of miraculous supernatural revelations, says, I still have to do this work. And so I want to pick it up in Colossians 3 with uh, this vision that Paul gives us for our lives, and then with an invitation, then I want to talk about how we actually live into this. And so this vision is the vision for the life of a disciple, right? Like Paul tells us, this is what we're after. This is our pursuit. This is our telos. This is the goal. Chapter 3, verse 1, since, or so if, you can be translated either way, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul begins this passage by reminding the Colossian church about the broader reality that frames their lives as disciples kind of live on two planes, right? Like there's the way we kind of tend to see our life and Paul wants to lift our vision and to say, actually kind of pull back the curtain and say, this is what's really true. Regardless of how you feel today, regardless of what you think, regardless of what your life looks like externally, this is the core reality of your life. He says, Christ is your life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ and you're seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. The vision for life for a disciple is simply this, a life lived in loving union with Jesus for the sake of others. That's the whole point of Colossians 3, 1 through 17, a life in God for the sake of others, a life in loving union with Jesus for the sake of others. This is what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple, or what we might call in our modern parlance, being a Christian, means more than believing the right things, more than attending church and just performing liturgy. Or even living out a Christian social ethic as much, of that, as much as I'm in favor of those things. It's more than that. Those things flow out of something deeper. It's the deeper call is participation in the life of God. 
We're invited into a life with God. Theologians call this union with Christ. It's the doctrine of of our union with Christ, which means that everything that's true of Jesus is now becoming true of us by grace through faith. We're united with Jesus by faith so that everything that's true of him is now our inheritance and our reality as disciples. Jesus, Paul says, died to the power of sin. Now we have died to the power of sin. Jesus was raised to life and ascended to the right hand of the Father to reign and rule over his kingdom. And now guess what? We have been raised with Christ and given access to both the intimacy of God the Father and the authority of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus' Jesus' life is enfolded into this divine community of Trinitarian love and delight and joy. So now we have been enfolded into, we're now united with and hidden with Christ in God. This is our deepest and truest identity, Paul says. This is what's most true about you. This is what anchors and gives direction to all the other aspects of our identity, right? Our gender, our sexuality, our ethnicity, our personality, our achievements, our vocation, our financial status, our relationships. Paul says this is the most true thing that gives direction to all of those. All of those are important, but they're not the main thing. The main thing is that you are now hidden with Christ in God. That is your identity in Christ. So the goal of discipleship, then, is to grow in our awareness, our attentiveness to, in our cultivation, right, an active cultivation of this life of loving union with God that exists as the core reality of our being. This is our operating system. This is who we are as Christians. And as we live more and more in that loving union, in awareness of that loving union and communion with God, we become like him. That's the whole point. We become like him in our relationships with others. We become Christ-like. Athanasius, one of the great early defenders of the faith, uh, one of the writers of you know, the, the creeds said this, God became man so that we might become God. What he means is God became like us so that we might become like him. That's the great goal of our lives, to become like him. Now, while this is our truest reality, union with Christ, and it's the inevitable goal of our lives, notice the tension that Paul's walking them into. The tension of that as a theological truth versus their actual lived experience in the world. Paul says, since that's true, seek. Seek the things above. Set your mind on the things above. Paul seems to be suggesting that living out this reality, living in this tension of our union with Christ, is not something that's automatic. It's not something that's magic. It's not something that's easy. It requires intentional effort and action on our part. The Greek verb seek here in verse one means to look for, to desire, to pursue, which is what we've been talking about. Seek God, pursue God. What does it mean to be a community seeking God? And he also says set your mind, which can be translated orient your whole person to God. Now, why is this so difficult, right? Shouldn't it be easy? God is, we're participating in the life of God. Why is it so hard for us to do this? Paul says the reason that it's so difficult to live in constant communion with God is that we have to contend with the dynamics of what he calls our old self or our former self or what you you might call what some people have called our false self, right? This is what Paul in other places calls the flesh. And it's just shorthand for 
our sinful attempts at pursuing life apart from God with our own strength, with our own wisdom, with our own resources. It's interesting to me that Paul uses the language of clothing, put off and put on. It's clothing language, take off garment, put on a garment, because that takes us back to Genesis. And what do we read in the Genesis story? Adam and Eve try to live their life apart from the presence and the power of God. They try to live with their own strength. They try to be their own gods. And what do do we find them doing in Genesis chapter three? Weaving together garments to cover their shame, to cover their guilt, to try to do life apart from the presence and power of God. It's like your favorite pajama shirt. I don't know if you guys have like a favorite shirt that's just like over time, it just gets softer and softer and softer to the point where like you don't even know that you're wearing it. And like people, people are like your spouse or like roommate's like, that's disgusting. Why do you, it's like so tattered and so worn and you don't even notice it because it's so comfortable, but it's tattered and falling apart. That's your old self. It's comfortable. It's all you know, but it's false. It's rooted in unreality. It's rooted in rebellion against God. It's, it's not life to the full. And so Paul says, take that nasty thing off, right? And then put on, which it's interesting, again, the language of salvation in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, is around being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You ever notice that? Being clothed with the fullness of life that comes from Jesus. And so there's this invitation to take off our old self and to put on our true self that's hidden with Christ in God, to take off old demonic patterns here that Paul talks about of anger and violence and lying, and to put on new kingdom patterns of love and peace and compassion and kindness and so on. So we're invited to seek, to put to death, to put off our false self or our old self and invited to put on this true self in Christ. But this is not something that we do in our own strength. It's interesting here, the verb tenses are a combination of active, middle voice, and passive, to use some grammar terms. Active is like, you do this, you throw this ball, right? Um, Passive, this ball was thrown at me, somebody hit me with this. And then there's the middle voice. And it's interesting that put on and put off is in the middle voice. Middle voice is where, in, in, in the Greek way of thinking, it's where somebody else initiates and then you're invited to participate and continue that action into the future. And so Paul's saying, as you're putting this on, as you're putting off and putting on the old self, remember, you are being renewed. This is a passive thing. This is happening to you, but you're also invited to participate and to join with God, to partner with God in bringing into the reality of your life what is already true in the realm of God's kingdom. Become, you could just summarize Colossians 3, become what you already are in Christ. So Paul invites us to seek. And when he says seek the things above, he's not talking about heaven or like a location or just like sit in a lotus position and close your eyes and click your heels and pretend, you know, like that's not what he's talking about. When he, when he uses this word above and in contrast to the earth, He's saying, seek this realm, seek this, seek this kingdom, right? Think about a realm like, kind of like a multiverse, right? There's multiple realities at play that we can't see. There's multiple layers to reality. And there's a realm called God's kingdom that Jesus came to bring on this earth that's characterized by love and justice and peace and is broken into this world through Jesus. So to seek what's above is to seek to bring those values, those perspectives, those practices, and actually the very presence of God into our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then eventually into the world. Which means, of course, that we have to, re- we have to reject 
other values, other perspectives, other habits, which in Paul's language would be kind of like part of living in this world of the flesh, right, where this realm is characterized by seeking life apart from the presence and power of God. So as we seek him, as we become like him, Paul says we become a blessing to those around us. This is all about the church. This is all about how we relate to each other. So what's at stake in our spiritual formation is not just our personal intimacy with God, our personal relationship with God. Everything that's happening is I'm being formed and shaped or not being formed and shaped, rather being deformed by the way of the world, directly affects you. Do you ever think about that? Like my resistance to what God is doing through the invitations of the Spirit to form me into a person of love has a direct impact on you. If I don't allow myself to go through that crucible, if I don't allow myself to do that work, if I don't abandon myself to Jesus and partner with him in that work, I am having a negative effect on you. And if you don't do that, you're having a negative effect on me because we're a body. Spiritual formation is always for the sake of others. So this is the vision. This is the vision for seekers. This is the vision for disciples, that we live increasingly in loving union with God for the sake of loving others as we've been loved, right? It's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. But recognize that there's work to be done, right? Recognize that you're going to have to seek. You're going to have to put to death. You're going to have to put off and put on some things. Now, that sounds great, right? We all want that. I think that's the life that we long for. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, like you, you want to become like a mature, whole, loving person. But this is the vision for disciples, But like, I know that I'm preaching to like a bunch of pragmatic Midwesterners. And you're just like, oh yeah, that sounds great. But like, how do we actually do that? How do we actually become these kinds of people? I've tried that before and it doesn't seem to work. I went to therapy and it didn't work. I got religious and it didn't work. I tried, you know, spiritual disciplines and it didn't work. Like, what does it look like for us to actually build a life that lives in that tension between who, we're, who we want to be and who God designed us to be and who we actually are right now. Because I know for many of you, you're just like, oh, okay, just like I've come to church. I barely got here this morning. I fought with my people on the way to church. I've had a really bad week. And now you're just telling me to do all these things, like try harder. That's not what I'm saying, by the way. But I know many of us come in this space emotionally feeling overwhelmed. We feel exhausted. We feel sad about our lives. We feel lonely and angry or whatever. So what does it look like for us to live into that? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Because I want to give you a container for this vision. I don't want to just give you a vision and inspire you. We say this all the time. Inspiration is not enough for transformation, right? Insight is not enough to change us. We've got to live a life that actually begins to reflect more and more the life of Jesus. And the container for that, the, the soil for that, historically, I want to just give you a tool this morning, a wisdom tool that's been handed down through the generations in the church, especially in seasons of renewal, like the opportunity that we're living in right now, the opportunity for the renewal of the church, the great opportunity, I think, of our generation to see reform in the church, to see the church become more whole. And that's what we long for. The container for that kind of vision, for this kind of life that's hidden with Christ and God growing and loving union with God for the sake of others, the answer the church has given us down through the ages has been what they called a rule of life. And this shouldn't be new if you're, if you're new to someone, maybe this is new language, it shouldn't be new for any of us that are around, but I want to just talk very practically about how to do that, right? How do we build 
a rule of life that guides and guards our lives towards this vision of loving union with Christ for the sake of others. Now, what is a rule of life? I want to just answer that. Uh, I want to answer that biblically, because I know some of you are like, okay, where's that in Scripture? I want to answer that historically, and I want to answer that practically, just quickly, uh, on, on the kind of the historical. But I want to do that historically, because it's important that we see this is not a trendy life hack. Okay, this is something that's been around for generations and stood the test of time. Andy Crouch, uh, Christian author, says this, a rule of life is a set of practices to guard our habits and to guide our lives. I think it's a really great definition. A set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. Pete Gregg, the founder of 24-7 Prayer, if you're familiar with him, he wrote a book on rule of life, and he says, a rule of life is a set of principles and practices we build into the rhythm of our daily lives, helping us to deepen our relationship with God and to serve him more faithfully. If creeds are what we believe and Christ is why we believe, a rule is how we seek to live out that faith day to day as disciples in the power of the Spirit. The definition that we put in our community rule of life, we are a community that's organized around a shared rule of life together, um, just a basic approach to scripture reading and prayer and Sabbath and some basic practices that have guided the church, again, for a long time. Here's our definition that we put in there. It's a set of Spirit-empowered practices, commitments, and relationships that help disciples abide in Jesus more deeply, right? John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this is our attempt to say, how do we abide, right? How do we, how do we live into Jesus's words to his disciples before he ascended to the Father? Go therefore to all nations and do what? Baptize them, teach them how to obey all that I've commanded you and I will be with you always, right? He doesn't just say, talk to them about it, give them some good platitudes, some good ideas, some good concepts, some interesting mental models and frameworks. No, he says, teach them how to obey all that I've commanded you. It's not intuitive. It's not easy. It's not natural. We have to learn it. So where do we find this in the Bible? Well, there's no verse that says, thou shalt live in a rule of life. Okay, let's just get that out there. But I, but I think there's an implied thing that's happening here. If you look at this, even this passage in Colossians 3, where Paul says, Christ is your life, right? This idea of Christ being our life is something that Paul would have, of course, received from Jesus himself, right? What did Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? I am, a statement of who he is, I am the anybody, way, the truth, and the life. Now, many of us are familiar with Jesus as our life. We're familiar maybe with Jesus as the truth, but Jesus as the way gets a lot less airtime. Eugene Peterson, pastor, recently uh, passed away, but just a great mentor to many of us in pastoral ministry, he says this in his book on the way of Jesus. He says, Jesus is the truth gets far more attention than Jesus is the way. Jesus as the way, this is a pretty astounding claim, is the most frequently evaded metaphor among the Christians with whom I've worked for 50 years as a North American pastor. The Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. I love that. Just put that up there. Jesus, the way of Jesus plus the truth of Jesus gives us the life of Jesus. In other words, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, You've got to learn, of course, in the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, in response to all that God has done for you in Christ, of course, not as a way to earn your salvation, but if you want the life of Jesus, you have to learn to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That's what it means to be an apprentice, 
to apprentice yourself to the great teacher, to the great rabbi, Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, and to live his life. That's what it means to be a disciple. And, and by the way, Jesus didn't make this up. No pun intended, by the way. He didn't, he didn't make this, this idea of the way up. He's drawing on Old Testament language of walking in the way of God or a way of life that involves our whole person, beliefs and practices. I mean, what was the law if not a rule of life, right? Psalm 1, what does it mean to be a flourishing disciple? Don't walk in the way of the wicked, walk in the way of God. Delight yourself. He starts talking about practices and habits. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord day and night, right? Like that's the idea of a way. And this was often expressed through covenants where God would make a covenant with people and they would make a covenant in response or vows that people would make uh, to God or to one another. Think of Daniel in Babylon, right? Like his cultural identity, they're trying to erase his cultural and religious and spiritual identity. And he develops a rule of life or a way of life where he prays at certain times of the day, right? And he refuses to bow the knee, right? When he's, when he's commanded to do so. He fasts and he eats a certain kind of diet. All of that can be viewed as a sort of rule of life. My point in all this is just in saying a vision for loving union with God needs a container. And the container for the church throughout the ages has been a rule of life, an intentional way of life that points us towards the life that we long for in Jesus. It's the same thing. We, we don't really have uh, much of a structure for vows in our current moment because people are kind of down on vows, especially younger people, but we still have marriage vows. I do lots of weddings. I'm going to do one in a few weeks. And one of the things I stole from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I do this in all of my weddings, if you ever ask me to do a wedding, I'm going to do this in your wedding, um, was to point out the fact that although we're all here and there's been lots of money that's been spent and time invested in making you two look beautiful and like smelling good, it's easy to make like a public pronouncement when everybody looks their best, they've lost all their weight, they've done all the, I mean, this is as good as you're going to look probably, right? Like this is it. Sorry to tell you, you're at your prime. It's easy to say, oh, I love you so much. But let that kind of go a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years with a couple of kids, and it's not so easy. And here's what Bonhoeffer had to say to married couples. This is like the best marriage counseling ever. He says, not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Your vows sustain the love when you don't feel it. It's the container that carries you through the seasons, through the hard times. That's what a rule of life does. It sustains your faith when you don't feel it. You still need to show up. There's still an invitation. Historically, a rule of life, again, is not a new thing. It's an ancient way. The early church had two rules that they lived by. The rule of faith, which we call orthodoxy, which was expressed in doctrinal statements and belief statements like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. It was abstract, poetic, beautiful, confessional. But there's another rule that we forget about oftentimes, and it was a rule of life, orthopraxy, right? Orthodoxy and orthopraxy together, which was a commitment to apprentice under Jesus and to live a certain kind of life in our everyday, right? It's messy, it's super specific in different seasons, and it's very pragmatic. It's not about idealism. It's about the real gritty, like, how do I live in the late 
Roman Empire? How do I live in ancient Greece? How do I live in Russia? How do I live in 21st century America? That's what a rule of life has been. And it goes back again to at least the third century to, uh, to the Egyptian, uh, what we call the desert fathers and mothers, which again, if you're not familiar with that tradition, uh, it's okay. Desert, not dessert, but desert. Um, a group of people who, when the Roman Empire was essentially falling apart, withdrew from society. They moved out into the deserts of Arabia and Egypt and all over the Middle East and eventually out to what they call Pustinias in Russia. And they devoted themselves to a life of prayer and work and the study of scripture. And they did it not just to cloister themselves off, they did it to re-enter into society with gifts to offer up the very presence and power of God and to resist the corroding and corrupting influence of the surrounding world. Rule of life became foundational to St. Patrick and the Celtic missionaries after that. And then St. Augustine and his people lived by a rule of life. And probably most famously, we're familiar with maybe this rule of life from St. Benedict, right? Which is really easy to read, 80 pages or so. And just was simply written, I love the, the, the way this is written, um, in trying to guide these uh, monastics and you know, ascetics who went out into the desert and pulled them together into monasteries. Here's what uh, Benedict starts his rule of life with. He says, therefore, we intend to establish a school for the Lord's service, like a training gym. You know what I mean? This is, this is like CrossFit for the ancient folks, right? And, and in drawing up its reg, spiritual cross, they actually called themselves spiritual athletes because they knew this required lots of training. In drawing up its regulations, we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome, now, that got corrupted over time and reformed many times. But he says, the good of all concerned, however, may prompt us to a little strictness in order to amend faults, and here's the key, to safeguard love. The point of the rule was love. And so they built these communities, and this became the foundation in many ways for Western civilization, certainly shaped European civilization and the formation of our culture very deeply. That was carried on by all kinds of Catholic orders, the Franciscans and the Trappists and others, and then eventually there was Protestant, uh, lots of Protestant versions of that as well. Protestant orders, we didn't call them orders, but like Billy Graham, you know, Billy Graham lived by a rule of life, the Modesto Manifesto. That was a rule of life. Martin Luther King Jr., the great civil activist, lived by a rule of life with his people. His rule of life was nonviolence, and he had very specific habits and practices that they would use to live into that. Most recently, this has become popular again. Well, uh, the Korean church has a rule of life too. Um, a friend of mine was a Korean church planner, and he was telling the story about when an older, he's a uh, millennial, when an older Korean came to his church when he just got started, and they said they asked, where, where is morning prayer? He's like, oh, we're not really doing that, you know, whatever. He's like, no morning prayer. This is not a legit church. Koreans get up at six o'clock in the morning. The Korean church is known for coming together and doing out loud verbal prayers where they're shouting out their pains, their joys, their lives, and they're lifting it before God in a chorus of prayer every single day from 6 to 7 a.m. That's a rule of life. Crosses cultures, crosses classes. This is not just for the elite. This is not for the bourgeois. This is not for the privileged. This is not just for the monks. This is for everyday, ordinary barbers, marketing people, teachers, moms, dads, garbage men, college professors. It's become popular again in the last several decades through the spiritual formation movement, if you're familiar with that. Dallas Willard and Richard Foster, who planted a church out in California, started writing books and resources and practicing these things in their church. They started this movement called Renovare. And so a lot of us have read this. Maybe you've read Ruth Haley Barton, or you've read Rich Velotis, or you've read some of the more popular uh, modern spiritual formation people. All of this goes back 
to the earliest parts of the church. This is not trendy, life hack, self-help, extra-biblical legalism. It is wisdom that's been handed down through the generations. It is an ancient way repurposed for our time and place to help us live into this vision of the good life. Now, I'm just going to throw this on the screen, but what you see when you look at those trends, what do you, what do you see, excuse me, when you look at the patterns of how our rule of life functions? Just a couple of things I just want to point out because I want to get to how we actually do this and I want to help you if you're interested in experimenting with this in your own life. I want to help you put together a rule of life here in the last part of our, of our sermon. But what you see, a couple of things. One, it integrates vision and action. A rule of life is not about platitudes. It's not about ideas. It's about what does it concretely, specifically, particularly in our time look like to become a person of love? How do I love God and love my neighbor right now? It asks simply the question, two questions that kind of guide a rule of life. What kind of person am I becoming? And then how do I live in such a way that aligns or points my life in that direction of the kind of person I want to become? That's the, that's the heart of a rule of life. It's counterformation. Colossians 3, if you read this, it's really interesting here. The list of vices and virtues are not Paul dialing up some random list of a table of vices. This is counterformative for Roman culture. Two of the biggest struggles for the early church as they were interacting with Roman society was sexual immorality and violence. It's no accident that Paul puts those right at the heart of this rule of life. That's always been the case. Benedict comes along in a time of chaos when society is evaporating, and what does, he, what does he preach? Stability in a time of chaos. Francis of Assisi comes along at a time of great greed when the world was transitioning, different economic models from, from trade-based to money and currency-based, and there's all kinds of greed in the church, and Francis says, we will take vows of what? Poverty. We will give away. These are all privileged people who grew up with lots of education, lots of money. They give it all away. They step down the social ladder to become voluntarily poor. And they live their lives, not just because they love being poor. They live it in contrast to the values of dominant society. It's always how it's been. Martin Luther King, again, nonviolence in a time where the easy thing to do when somebody hits you is to hit them back. He says, no, we will be a movement of nonviolence in a time of oppression. And that will change the world. It's, it's a shared thing. It's always done in community, right? So I'm, I'm for like a personal rule of life, but recognize this is always done with the support of a larger community. It's always a minority movement. There's always a remnant. It's never a big percentage. It's like the 20-80 rule, maybe 10 or 20% of people really live intentionally like this, which, which is why it can be so hard to be a disciple of Jesus who feels so much passion and you show up in the church and you feel all of this apathy around you and you're just like, oh, I long for, like that, that's the genesis for a, a, a renewal movement based on a rule of life. It's people who feel that call and want to get away from um, or transcend kind of the apathy of their generation. And then it's always a, a part of a renewal movement. Right? A rule of life goes hand in hand with a renewal movement. Look at any great renewal movement in the history of the church and you will see a rule of life right alongside that. One of my favorite examples of that is the, Moravi the Moravians, right? Back in the 18th century, a guy named Count Zinzendorf, you can see him here. He was a German aristocrat, super wealthy, very educated. Goes off to university to study law, encounters a group of five other friends who uh, all kind of had this spiritual awakening and really want to devote themselves to Jesus. 
So they form this community. They, they actually take vows. They have rings. That, uh, they inscribe on the inside of these rings, no man lives for himself. And they form this community. And then they start inviting others, recruiting others, other young people into their movement. They eventually invite in refugees, Moravian refugees who are being persecuted. So now it's a cross-cultural movement. And out of this, they live according to three vows. It's called the, the Honorable Society of the Order of the Mustard Seed. Pete Gregg, 24-7 prayer. They've revived this actually after 200 years of this being dormant. They're now taking vows and doing rings and doing this over in the UK. It's fascinating. There's three basic commitments. Be true to Christ. Be kind. Take the gospel to the nations. That's their summary of love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then they lived it out in all kinds of really concrete ways in community with each other. And it sparked one of the great renewal movements that touched all kinds of people. But one example, John Wesley deeply, deeply impacted his conversion story. The Wesleyan church, the Methodist church, like if you grew up in these movements, you are a descendant and an heir of the Moravian movement kicked off by Zinzendorf in this rule of life. Now again, the rule of life has no power. It's just the container. The man, really helpful to have the container. So what does it look like practically? I want to close our time just walking us through uh, how we could do this in our own lives. What does it look like to build a rule of life? A rule of life, the, the word rule just comes from the Latin word regular. It means, from, we get these words, regular, regulation, ruler. So think of a ruler as an instrument that helps you draw a straight line, right? So think of a rule of life as a, an instrument that helps draw a straight line from your life today and the life that you long for that's hidden with Christ in God. That's what we're after. The idea the ancient teachers would teach this as a, as a sort of trellis, right? Thinking about that imagery of the vine and the branches. Think of it like a, a wild vine can grow fruit and be fruitful laying on the ground, but it's, it's vulnerable in all kinds of different ways. And so a trellis gives structure and direction and allows it to be more fruitful than it could be on its own. In the same way, we as disciples of Jesus need structure if we're going to grow and become faithful and fruitful over time. Now, here's the reality that I always say, and it's important for us to acknowledge practically. You already have a rule of life. Do you know that? Now, you may be like, I'm a P on the Myers-Briggs. No way. I'm not structure. No, you have a rule of life, Enneagram 7, I live life spontaneously, joy, I do whatever. You have a rule of life. Well, now the question is, do you know what your rule of life is? It may not be written down. It might be unconscious. It might be unintentional. It might be passive. But you have a rule of life. You have a way that you get up in the morning and spend your morning time. Most, for most of us, it means grabbing a device. And that's forming. First thing you grab in the morning is your phone. You do that over a lifetime, it will make you a certain kind of person. You have a way that you spend your days. You have a way that you spend your evenings, your meals. You have a way of spending your money. You have a way of thinking about power and approaching power. You have a way of interacting with technology and approaching relationships. You have a way of doing things in your business as an employee. You have a way of being a mom or being a dad. We all have a rule of life. The question is not, do I have a rule of life? But do I know what my rule of life is, and is it leading me to become the kind of person described here in Colossians chapter 3? Year over year, am I becoming more loving, more kind, more compassionate, more gracious, more peaceful, more grateful? I mean, just for a second, if we could. 
Let's just pause. Take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath. And I want you just to imagine the kind of person that you want to be at 80 if the Lord tarries. I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm 42. My parents are here thinking about what kind of person do I want to be for my kids? What does it look like to age well and not become bitter and cynical and an old crank? Forgive me if you're the old crank, but just, I don't want to be that. I, I want to grow in love. I want to be more peaceful. I, I want to be non-anxious in the kind of presence I bring into a room. I want to kind of have the presence like with my kids and my grandkids. I let my, my boys are here, my daughters are here. I look at them and when they're my age, I'm like, are they going to dread the, when I call them? Just be like, gosh, dad's calling again. So annoying, so frustrating, so needy. Every time he calls, he needs something, or, or he's just bitter. I can't even stand to talk to him. Maybe they start avoiding me. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't know about you. I want to be like a good wine that ripens with age. I want to be a blessing. I, I was walking with, a, with a, one of our elders at Northwest the other day, and I said, will you please tell me, like, can we just commit, can we make a vow to each other that if you see me becoming that kind of older person who my kids avoid, will you please tell me? And will you please help me? Because I don't want to be that kind of person. And I don't know what that looks like for you. But I would just ask the question, what is that vision? And then how is how you're living today taking you towards that or away from that? Are you living today in a way that takes you towards that destination? In your practices, your habits, the way you talk, what you think about, your imagination, what you give your time and energy and focus to? There's a business axiom, I don't know who said this, I looked it up, I couldn't find it. It says, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. Your life is set up, architected in a certain kind of way, consciously or unconsciously, written or not, active or passive. So if you're getting results you don't like, maybe you should step back and look at the system and say, what system is leading to me being this kind of person or not? So in this sense, I'm not inviting you to develop a rule of life I'm saying you already have a rule of life. What I'm asking you to do is to bring attentiveness to your life now, your whole life, not just your religious life or your, your whole life, to be intentional, to be attentive, to be prayerful, and to direct with the power of the Spirit how you're living in such a way that you open more and more of yourself over time to the invitations of the Spirit, to say yes to the Spirit, to say no to the flesh, to more and more offer myself to God so that he can form me into a person of love and peace. That's what a rule of life is about. So if you don't want to go on that journey, that's not where you're at, that doesn't work for you, fine. What's your system, though, and what's it doing to you? You don't have to do rule of life, but you do have to have an intentionality to the way that you live your life. So I have a rule of life. And I hesitated, I, thought, I actually thought about sharing it, and I was like, no, I don't want people to do my rule of life. I was going to put it up on the screen, but this is kind of something that's been developed with me and God. And so I would give you a framework for how I do this. This is my rule of life. I usually look at this monthly when I go away for a day of prayer and solitude, and I try to evaluate this and I try to stay current with this. And it's built around four invitations from God. I want to be present to God as he's present to me. I want to be present to other people. I want to be present to my work and my vocation, and I want to be present to myself 
as God is present to me. And in each of those categories, which again, this may be too much structure for some of you, but there's a Bible verse that kind of anchor, anchors that for me. There's a vision statement for each one of those things. Like this is the kind of person that I feel like God has invited me to become. And that kind of gives me some imagination for who I'm becoming and some ways to evaluate myself. There's some values that go with that. And then there's some habits, very specific habits that guard and guide how I do that. And I look at this and I refine it and I review it and I pray over it and I repent in it uh, when I'm in a good space. And sometimes it leads me to despair uh, and anxiety. But this is, this is my plan. And this is, Lord willing, over the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, how I am asking God to make me the kind of person who lives in this reality of being raised with Christ, seeking him, setting my mind on him, realizing that Christ is my life and my life is hidden with God in Christ. That may not be your strategy. There's other ways to think about that. Some people do like a two-by-two and they have four basic categories, rest, work, relationships, and uh, rest, work, relationships, prayer. So think about like a two-by-two and each of those, they just have some simple practices that they put in there that kind of guide that. Um, If you're a parent, I know you'd be going, this is crazy, like this is not for parents. Parents cannot do this kind of work. Uh, there's a great book that I have for you called Habits of the Household that I would strongly recommend. And basically, it says, you already have a rule of life as a parent. You have routines around bedtime and morning and how you do meals. What would it look like for you to reorient all of that towards God in ways that are very accessible and very simple for children? And, and then they can mature and grow with flexibility over time. This is a great little look at how do we do technology? How do we think about meals? How do we think about little prayers of blessing with our children? It's possible to do this as a parent, right? Again, you already have one. The question is, is it oriented towards your, your goal in life? Um, I just want to give you a couple quick little uh, best practices, and then I want to show you one thing, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here because we've got to go to communion. How do, we cre- how do you create your own rule of life? Just some best practices. One, start small. Super practical. Start small. There's always a temptation, this kind of thing, to do too much too fast and to jump into the deep end of the pool. And I just want to invite you to start with some small practices, especially if you're an intense personality. Can I just speak into things, not just for you, but for your spouse and for your kids? <laughs> Calm down. Just start with one thing. You don't have to do everything. If you, like, you want to change the world, what you want to do for everyone, would you just do one thing? And if I had to start with one practice that's very countercultural in all moment, of all the practices, and again, I think prayer is important, I think scripture is important, but I, I actually encourage people to start with Sabbath. Because if you're tired, you will not do any of the other stuff. And most of us are way too tired, and we live hurried, busy lives, and we need to stop and rest and to delight and to find space to worship, to be able to do the rest of it. Dallas World, that was his great advice. Start with Sabbath, okay? But Sabbath, prayer, scripture, some life-giving things, start small. Uh, Be specific, right? These are practices. These are habits. These are not ideas. These are not values. Uh, a, A good practice answers the questions when, how, how often, and with whom, right? So be specific, be, be practice-based, action-oriented. Be flexible, hold it loosely, knowing that there's always gonna be unexpected interruptions, crises, sickness, and weakness. We don't serve our rule, our rule serves us. You see this with Jesus. He lived a life of Sabbath, but there were many times when he healed people on the Sabbath. And he said, hey man, Sabbath's not made for man, or not, man's not made for the Sabbath, Sabbath's made for man. It's a gift. Stop turning it into a legalism. So do your best, but just know that there's gonna be interruptions. And that's why I love that the rule of Benedict starts with, we wanna draw nothing harsh, right? This is about love. We want to set up this rule, he says, Benedict says, so that the weak have, some, have nothing to fear and the strong have something to reach for. Be realistic. Take into account your personality, your season of life, your discipleship season, 
your limitations, your opportunities. Somebody else's rule can't be yours. Do not copy somebody else's rule. Do not read a book and then just make it your own. You must consider where you're at. There's gonna be a huge difference in how, what your rule of life looks like as a 25-year-old versus a 35-year-old versus a 45-year-old versus a 65-year-old. Every season has limitations and every season has opportunities. So just be realistic, be gentle, be kind to yourself and how you develop your rule. Uh, think holistically, right? Don't just think about spiritual disciplines as just Bible study, reading, prayer, community, hospitality, like the classic list of spiritual disciplines. Those are important, right? Like that's like the mainstay of a good spiritual diet. But anything can be spiritual. If all of our life is spiritual, in other words, it's empowered by the Spirit of God and aimed towards God himself, then anything can be a spiritual practice that opens us to the loving presence and transforming power of God. A walk can be a spiritual practice. A good dinner and a feast can be a spiritual practice. Jumping rope can be a spiritual practice, right? Whatever, taking a nap can be a spiritual practice. If it's done with an eye towards becoming this kind of person, powered by the Spirit. We need both upstream and downstream disciplines. Upstream are those that are more difficult for us given our personality. So if you're an introvert, you know, up, uh, downstream for you is just like quiet, solitude, silence, and you're like, that is the good life, okay? Community, upstream, and being in Sunday worship, upstream. But you need both, right? Extroverts need silence and solitude, Bonhoeffer says, and introverts need community. And without both, we live a deficient spirituality. And then review regularly. This is a dynamic document that serves you. Review it, I would say, at least monthly, or when you have a major change in season of life, you should be regularly going back to your rule of life, revising it. It's not you know, chiseled in stone like the Ten Commandments. It is very much a living, breathing, dynamic document. And maybe it just starts again with one thing. What's one practice? And then you kind of go from there. I want to throw this up on the screen as we close uh, in terms of a process. We actually spent a couple of uh, years building uh, a, a, a process for how to create a rule of life. So this is something that I've used and I've taught this before here. Uh, but I want to bring it back. It's on our website. If you go to somamidtown.com, in the spiritual formation page, we have tons and tons and tons of resources in there for you, podcasts and all kinds of things. But this is a simple process that we built. I, a lot of um, rule of life stuff is like trying to get your doctorate in spirituality. It's super complex and super intense. I'm a simple person. This is, uh, this is like getting your GED in rule of life. So just it moves from left to right. It's very simple. It starts with asking God, what is your invitation for me in this season, right? Where do you want me to grow? And that usually, that invitation usually starts with desire, like I'm sensing God drawing me to grow in this particular way. For me, it started with pain. It can often start with pain and anxiety when I was in my 20s and lots of like mental health, different challenges I was experiencing. It was like, God, I don't want to experience this. Would you teach me a different way? Maybe you have like a really broken relationship and you're like, man, I don't know what reconciliation looks like, but I need to own my own stuff in this. I need to learn to become a person who can forgive, okay? So we start with an invitation. I always try to anchor it in scripture in a biblical passage, truth. Maybe you have a metaphor and you think of like a vine or maybe you develop a metaphor, you're an artist and you can kind of draw it out or paint it out or whatever, or song, whatever, that's, that's the invitation. Then you look at the resistances. What are the things that are keeping me from living this life, both externally and internally? What are some of the competing commitments that as I try to live into this, I notice in myself fear and anxiety and worry, or I notice that I'm super busy and I can't do this because my life is too full. Well, what does that say about 
what I really believe about the good life? What does that say about assumptions and values that I might be not even aware of that the pursuit of this practice begin to stir up and bring to my attention? I need to list those out, and I need to bring those before God for healing and growth and transformation. Then limitations, right? What, what season of life are you in? And what, what, do you, what do you need to acknowledge, right? I've got kids. I'm caregiving for a loved one who's dying, right? Like I'm sick and I'm in poor health or whatever. Like you need to acknowledge those limitations as you build your rule of life. That's a reality check. Practices then, okay, what is my current rule of life? What are my current practices? And then what practices could help me move towards this imitation of God? And then finally, what support do I need? What friendships, what therapy do I need to get into? What spiritual direction might I need? What could community look like? Because I'm going to need a community to sustain this and to move towards the life that God has for me. Man, how would that change even the way we think about accountability? Do you not, are you like me? Do you not like accountability? I hate accountability groups. It's basically like show up and dump all the worst stuff about your life this week. It's like, that doesn't sound great at all. But what if accountability was less like show up and tell me your worst sins? And it was more like, how could I gently nudge you in the direction of this vision that God has for your life? And how could I participate with you in helping unleash that this week by just being present to you and speaking the truth in love? All right, that's it. It's rule of life. I want to move us to communion, and I want to bring us back to where we started. So you can go ahead and put your stuff up, and we'll close our time just, again, taking a deep breath. Let me pray over us, and now lead us into communion. Father, thank you for this vision for our lives, where we find Christ as our life and we grow as people of love who live in loving, commun- live in loving union and communion with you for the sake of others. Teach us, God, what it looks like to live this life. We don't know. We're like children. We need direction. We need help. We need vision. We need our hearts to be moved, our souls to be stirred up. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued from all of our grandiose delusions and, and false visions of what it means to live the good life And God, we need you to open up our eyes to all the ways that our current life is architected against that and to let go of some things and to put on some new things, not just for the sake of adding or trying to get your attention or whatever, trying to earn our salvation, but because we are so loved, we're invited into a new way of being in the world. So teach us, God, what it means to live as your disciples. We need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.